honorable scholars, respected brothers, listeners, I start by quoting a famous Andalusian scholar, Ibn Hazm. He says, I have searched for a common goal amongst mankind, meaning I've applied my mind to see that what is it that every human desires. And then he comments further and says, I've come to the conclusion that every human wants to conquer his anxiety, his sadness, his depression, and his feeling down. That's what every human desires. It's a common goal to conquer your anxiety. So the pursuit of emotional balance and the pursuit of diminishing anxiety is a universal thing. Was there, is there, and always will be there until the day of Tayama. Even under normal circumstances, people are burdened with their own difficulties, their own challenges, their own hardships, their own circumstances. If you put on top of that what we are experiencing as an ummah globally, and what we see happening today in the Middle East, in Palestine, in Gaza, in terms of genocide and ethnic cleansing, then it puts even more pressure on a person's mental health. The irony of the world that we live in today is we have advanced on every other front. Communication has become easier. Um, travel has become easier. Everything has become easier. But we are less happier than ever before. We suffer more from depression, anxiety, and sadness today than ever before. And that is something that we have to unpack. It's not because I'm an expert that I address you on this, but I've done a fair degree of research. And it's an evolving topic because it's become so acute these days. Mental health has become so much of an issue. Doctors are exploring it further. Psychologists are investigating it deeper. And even the ulama are looking at the Quran and Sunnah to ascertain that what does the Quran and Sunnah say about this topic? What do the experts say? And how do you fit what the experts say into the parameters of Islam? So, in short, everyone has got a challenge with their mental health to some extent or the other because of individual challenges or challenges in your community or challenges in your country or challenges in the ummah or global challenges, be it economic, be it physical, be it mental or emotional. So I'm going to unpack this topic by answering four questions. The first is, what does Islam say about mental health? The second, what is the history and legacy of mental health in Islam? The third, what is the difference between the Islamic understanding and approach and the Western understanding and approach to mental health? And the fourth question would be, what are the treatments and the solutions from the Quran and Sunnah? So if we look at the first question, what is the Islamic position on mental health? It's a balanced position. Sometimes you hear people make the remark, they say, Nabi Wasallam never went to a psychologist. Nabi Wasallam never took any medication for mental health. What is all these new things, these innovations? So that's one view. Another view is what we see in the Western world. They say, no, this, this is biological. It's got nothing to do with your spirituality. It's got nothing to do with the supernatural, with jinn or jadu and black magic. It's got nothing to do with your inner state. It's all got to do with the chemical balance in your body. And it can only be treatment, treated by medication. That's another view. The Islamic view, in my, in my opinion, is in between. It's in between. And that is, mental health is made up of a number of factors. Physical and biological, emotional and psychological, spiritual, 
and metaphysical and supernatural, which is your jinn and jadu. So your mental health is affected by any one of these or even all of this in different combinations and degrees. So the cause will be as a result of either one of these or all of these factors. Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual and metaphysical supernatural. And the treatment also will have to be looked at not only from one perspective but from all of these perspectives. That is the Islamic position. The Islamic position is that your mental health can be impacted by physical factors or spiritual factors. By factors within your control and by factors out of your control. And the cure also will be physical, metaphysical, spiritual, emotional. See, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has mentioned, مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ دَاءً إِلَّا أَنزَلَ لَهُ الدَّوَاءً Allah has not sent down a sickness except that Allah has sent with it a cure. It's for us to seek the cure and find the cure. And this is not only in relation to physical illnesses, this is also in relation to spiritual illnesses and to mental illnesses. So the Islamic position is, it is just as important to maintain good mental health as it is to maintain good physical health. When Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam talks about Al-Mu'minul Qawi, that the strong believer is better than the weak believer, then the strong believer is not only one who is physically strong, but one who is strong at heart, strong in mind, strong in spirit, strong in faith. And these mental factors are governed by many internal factors. Mental health rather is governed by many internal factors, anxiety, fear, depression, worry, and outside factors, sickness, hardship, loss. You lose someone close to you. You lose something valuable to you. All of these things in combination impact your, medic your mental health. And all of us have this challenge to varying degrees. Some people are physically more fit, some people are physically less fit. Everyone has some sort of a physical challenge or the other. Some people have back problems, others have diabetes, others have blood pressure, others are dealing with something very terminal like cancer. So we've got to understand mental health from a similar perspective. And that's the first question that I wanted to unpack. That what does Islam say? Islam takes a very balanced position. Islam doesn't say that because Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam never saw a psychologist per se, Therefore, there's no such thing as mental health, nor does it say it's only physical and can only be treated uh, medically or with medication. Now, what is the legacy and history of mental health in Islam? We look at the lives of the Anbiya And what I want to highlight to you via these examples, which I'm going to give you very quickly in passing, because time is always of an essence when it comes to a Juma talk, is that the Anbiya as great as they were, even though they had a direct line of communication with Allah, they were the recipients of revelation and wahi, they also had to deal with fluctuation in their emotions. If you look at Yaqub he was deeply emotional about the loss of his son Yusuf for many years until he lost his sight. And look at the words of the Quran, Ya Asafa ala Yusuf, Ya Asafa ala Yusuf. In the Quran, Allah is telling us that Yaqub says, Oh my grief over Yusuf. Oh, the loss of Yusuf, it's, it's weighing me, it's weighing on me, it's, it's wearing me down, it's burdensome. So Yaqub had to deal with that emotion. If you look at Nabi Wasallam, that year in which he lost his greatest support, Kharija radiallaha, and his greatest ally, Abu Talib, and that very year he went to Ta'if and he was dealt with in the main manner that we know he was dealt with, the ulama of Sirah have referred to it as Amul Huzn, the year of grief. The year of sadness, it shows that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam also had to deal with these emotions. When Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam got the first revelation, what happened? He came running to Khadija radiallahu Zammiluni, zammiluni, dathiruni, dathiruni. What does that mean? That Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was anxious. 
he was dealing with anxiety and she had to pacify him when revelation stopped nabi sallallahu became depressed until allah sent the revelation ma wadda'aka rabbuka wa ma qala that allah is not unhappy with you nor is allah displeased with you nor has allah forsaken you when nabi sallallahu son ibrahim was in his hands breathing his last and remember nabi sallallahu lost every one of his children in his lifetime besides fatima radiallahu and he started crying nabi sallallahu started crying when ibrahim alayhi was passing or radiallahu anhu was passing away and he said, Your departure from this world is causing pain to my heart, O Ibrahim. But I'll only say that which is pleasing to Allah. We know Nabi lost his mother at the age of six. At the age of six. They were on their way from Medina back to Makkah. His mother was originally from Medina. They had gone to visit that, family, that side of the family and she passed away. Years later, when Nabi made Hijrah, he made Hijrah at the age of 50. Right? So somewhere between the age of 50 and 63, when he was in Madinatul Munawwara, almost five decades after his mother had passed away, Nabi Sallallahu went to visit the grave of his mother. And I was listening to one scholar describe, he said, Nabi Sallallahu sat in a squatting position and cried like a baby next to the grave of his mother. He wept 50 years after she passed away. So even the Anbiya alayhi salatu had to deal with emotion. So when we say that in Islam, there's no such thing as men don't cry. It's rooted in the tradition of the Anbiya alayhi salatu wasalam. Look at this dua that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi teaches us. And this tells us that Nabi sallallahu alayhi acknowledged mental health. Allahumma inni a'udhu bika minal hammi wal hazan. Famous dua. Oh Allah, I seek your protection from ham. Ham is anxiety. You know, when you're constantly in worry, constantly in fear, constantly stressing, constantly agitated, everything is irking you and getting on your nerves. That is ham. Hazan is when you're totally dejected, when you feel, I don't know if I'll ever be happy now after I've had this incident in my life. That's hazan. Wal-ajaz. These are the words. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is saying, is a sense of inability when you become so helpless and hopeless that you think nothing will get better. So you, you just become very passive. Castle is laziness and fatigue where you become sluggish, where even small tasks become monumental. And as a result, you become lazy because you're just negative. You just have a negative state of mind, mental health. Well, Juban, Juban is cowardice. When you don't have confidence in yourself, you, you don't feel worthy, you criticize yourself too much, so therefore you don't do anything constructive. You don't pursue anything lofty. Bukhl, stinginess. You're only worried about yourself. So you don't, you don't, give in, you don't take into consideration others. You're preoccupied with your own gloom, with your own misery. You know, some people, you meet them and they just start. No, this is wrong, that is wrong, that is, this is gone expensive, that one did this to me, that one did that to me. They're constantly obsessed with their own misery. Debt. And when people overpower you, we see what's happening today in Muslim lands, when people overpower you. So if you look at these words in this dua, this famous dua where Rasulullah is teaching us that these things are important. Why make dua for it if there wasn't no concept of maintaining mental health in Islam and optimizing your mental health. See, sadness and sorrow is, is a natural part of life. The verse which I recited, Allah says, insana khulika Man is created restless. When misfortune hits him, he falls into a state of self-pity. If there's one thing we have mastered, is the ability to throw pity parties for ourselves. 
Just look at the national discourse, right? Now it's long weekend, public holiday, December. Any wedding, any walima, any hivs jalsa, what are people talking about? Only the negative. Only the negative. And I'm not saying that those negatives are not valid. Load shedding is a problem. The economy is an issue. The corrupt government is an issue. Collapsing infrastructure is an issue. Palestine is an issue. But when we only talk about the negative, it creates a negative narrative. And a negative narrative then results in a negative psyche. And that is what Islam is saying. Islam is a balance. It says you can't ignore it. But at the same time, you can't allow it to overpower you. And that's why I'm talking about it today. Throughout the ages, there were practitioners dedicated specifically to research mental health. Like for example, Al-Kindi who wrote a book on how, the trick to repelling sorrows. Or you had another great scholar, Balkhi, who wrote a book on sustenance of the body and soul. And he researched depression and psychological illnesses. And money was given to such experts and doctors from the state. Because they acknowledge that as much as you have to look after the physical well-being of people, you have to look after the mental well-being of people. So that's the answer to the second question. The first question was, what does Islam say about mental health? And the second is, what is our history from the Anbiya throughout the ages when it comes to this aspect of mental health? The third is, what is the difference between the Western approach and the Islamic approach? And this is the key part of the discussion. You see, mental health has become a buzzword. Every life coach is talking about it. Every public speaker is speaking about it. It's all there on social media. So we shouldn't fall into that which is out of the framework of Islam. We have to understand the difference between the Islamic paradigm and the Western paradigm which conflicts with Islam. Anything that is not Islamic but doesn't conflict with Islam is acceptable if there is, if there is benefit in it. So like I'm saying, people have the individual difficulties. My, my one friend always says, half the world is in oppression, the other half is in depression. Half the world is in oppression, the other half is in depression. So, so that's just how it is, right? Half of the world is occupied with the individual problems and the other half are occupied with the, with the collective problems. So we have our individual problems, we have our problems as a country, we have our problems as a ummah, we have a problem as, our problems as humanity. So what's the difference between the Western approach and the Islamic approach? I'll explain a few points. One. In Islam, we believe that it's not only the body that exists, it's the body and soul. And the soul is more important because the soul was created first and death brings the body to an end. But the soul doesn't come to an end. The soul continues into Barzakh and from there into, into the Akhirah. Death means is when the soul is separated from the body, then the body becomes a corpse. So as much as we nourish the body, we have to nourish the soul. And a lot of depression, anxiety, sadness and grief is as a result of having an overnourished or a well-nourished body and an undernourished soul. So there's an imbalance between the two. Sometimes depression is because of chemical reasons. Sometimes it's because of circumstances. Someone died or you had a loss in your business or something like that. But many times you see a man, he's not happy. Even if he's not acutely depressed, right where he's just sitting on the bed all day, he's not happy. Everything is going right in his life. There's no medical issue with him. They've run every test under the sun. Yet he's still not happy. Why? Because the body is well nourished, but the soul is not adequately nourished. And that creates the imbalance. And that is a fundamental difference between the Islamic understanding and the Islamic approach and the Western approach. The Western approach only looks at the body. Islam looks at the body, but Islam also looks at the soul. In the Western approach, they confuse pleasure with happiness. You see, pleasure comes from your senses, but pleasure is temporary. Happiness is an internal state of heart and mind, and that is permanent. So true happiness, 
is connected to your inner well-being, whereas pleasure is connected to your outer well-being. The Western world is only obsessed with optimizing pleasure. So we live in a hedonistic world. It's all about pursuing pleasure. But in Islam, we say, if you live your life in the right way, you'll get pleasure and you'll also get happiness. You'll get pleasure and you'll get happiness. So in, in short, from the Western approach is all about dunya. The Islamic approach is about dunya and akhirah. Because Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam told us, a dunya sijinul mu'min. The, belie- the, 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 the world is a prisoner for believer because we have multiple restrictions. Like a prisoner has restrictions. You can't go anywhere, do anything. Wajannatul kafir. But it is paradise for the non-believer because he can live his life however he wants. Whatever he wants to do, he can do. Pursue his pleasure with whoever he wants. So that's the difference between a believer and a, and a non-believer. Allah tells us in the Quran, وَلَنَبْلُوَنَّكُمْ بِشَيْءٍ مِّنَ الْخَوْفِ وَالْجُوعِ وَنَقْصٍ مِّنَ الْأَمْوَالِ وَالْأَنفُسِ وَالثَّمَرَاتِ I will test you. Allah says, I will test you. Actually, the more Allah loves you, the more Allah will test you. As much as we must ask Allah for afia, because we mustn't consider ourselves courageous in front of Allah. But it's a glad tiding. The, the more Allah loves you, the more Allah tests you. So for us, pain is not necessarily a bad thing. You lose someone close to you, there's pain. You take a knock in business, there's pain. There's genocide in Palestine, there's pain. We're restless. We look at those images, our temperatures rise. We get angry, we get frustrated. For a non-Muslim, pain is an irritant, it's an hindrance. For a Muslim, pain has meaning, it has purpose, it is redemptive, it can bring you closer to Allah, it can expiate your sins, it can earn you great reward, it energizes you, it brings you closer to Allah, it's a means of spiritual cleansing. That's why Rasulullah has said that there's nothing that befalls a Muslim, whether it's fatigue or illness or stress or distress or worry or grief or harm or even the pricking of a thorn, except that Allah wipes off your sins and increases your rewards. So that's another fundamental difference between the Western approach to mental health and the Islamic approach. The Western approach is you must remove all pain. It's an irritant. In Islam, we say when Allah decides to test you and inflict pain on you, whether it's physical pain because of a physical sickness or mental pain because of a loss or because of oppression or because of depression, you constantly in ibadah. Your sins are getting expiated and Allah is increasing your rewards and Allah is increasing your stages in the year after. That's why in a hadith, Rasulullah has said, May yuridillahu bihi khayran yusib minhu. If Allah wishes well for you, Allah will afflict you with difficulty and hardship. Allah will afflict you with difficulty and hardship. So there are biological components, but there are also psychological components. There are also spiritual components. And today the Western world is slowly but surely starting to wake up to it. And they're talking about uh, spiritual intelligence. They're saying a person with spiritual intelligence, whenever he suffers a setback in life, he's able to take meaning from that setback. And he's able to take that setback and use it as an energizer to reach even greater heights of success and to reach Allah and to become even closer to Allah Taala. See, the last point I'll mention in terms of the difference between the Western approach to mental health and the Islamic approach to mental health is this. Western approaches go and fulfill your desires. But sometimes the more you fulfill your desires in the wrong way, the more depressed you come. Because that's the promise of Allah. Allah says, وَمَنْ أَعْرَضَ عَنْ ذِكْرِي فَإِنَّ لَهُ مَعِيشَةً دَنْكَ If you live your life in the disobedience of Allah, you'll never be happy. You can own a private island, a private jet. Women will be throwing themselves at your feet. You'll have more money than you can count. You'll have more fame than anyone could imagine. But you won't be able to have a decent night's sleep because Allah is not happy with you. And if Allah is happy with you, you can be a beggar on the street corner with no clothing, no money and no shelter and you'll sleep with a smile on your face. 
That's the paradox of the age that we live in. We're seeking happiness and mental health in exactly the place where our mental health and happiness is fundamentally going to be compromised. The last aspect of what I want to discuss with you today, so I've answered the question, what does Islam say about mental health? What is the tradition of Islam? All the Anbiya had to deal with emotional challenges. I explained that. And what is the difference between the Western approach and the Islamic approach? So what are some of the solutions? Now, before I give you the solutions, I must explain to you something that these solutions are the fundamentals. It's not something that you haven't heard before. But exactly this is the point that we have lost connection with the fundamentals. That's why our mental health is not what it's supposed to be. And that's why when difficulty and challenge comes, whether it be independently in our personal capacity or nationally or internationally, we don't know how to deal with it because we haven't built capacity. Let me explain to you in very simplistic terms. They tell you, doctors will tell you, you must maintain good health, right? In terms of your body. So you must eat the right things. You must exercise. You mustn't eat the wrong things. And you mustn't be physically lethargic where you're only sitting all the time. So when you do that, even if you're not ill, the day when illness comes, your immune system is much stronger in order to be able to combat it. Correct? Similarly, with mental health, if your mental and emotional and spiritual capacity is strong, when personal loss happens, when national difficulty afflicts, or when international occupation, uh, oppression grabs the ummah, you'll have greater capacity to deal with it. I heard one of the Palestinians make a remarkable statement. They said, you know, how is it that we are able to withstand this onslaught and genocide? How? They said that our leaders, our spiritual leaders, have prepared this generation for the last 30 years strengthening their iman. Now when your iman is strong, then any setback, you, you'll cry. You know, you're human. You'll have fear. You're human. You'll feel depressed. You're human. But it won't overwhelm you. It won't break you. Like a man who's physically strong, when he gets sick, he will be sick for a while, but he'll be able to overcome it. It won't incapacitate him. Similarly, when the fundamentals are in place, then your mental health will be in a good position. So like you have to look after your body, you also have to look after your mental and spiritual state of well-being. How? Firstly, by embracing the concept of taqdeer. See, everything happens by the decree of Allah. You try your best, you exercise the most caution that you can, after that you leave it in the control of Allah. And that is, the, that is the beauty of being a Muslim. You're not defeatist, you're not passive, but you realize that you have to trust in Allah's plan. When the Sahaba were leaving Hudaybiyah, they thought that they were defeated in the treaty. And Allah said, Inna fatahna laka fatham mubina. We have granted you a manifest victory. Trust in Allah's plan. When they were in Makkah, they couldn't, they couldn't do nothing when Bilal was being dragged across the burning sands of Arabia. When Sumayyah's stomach was being pierced, the Muslims were so compromised, they couldn't do nothing, politically and militarily. But Allah said, Nasrullahi wal If you trust in Allah's plan and you do what Allah wants you to do, you will march into this very Makkah as liberators and conquerors. And then you'll see people entering into the deen in droves. You've got to trust in Allah's plan. The second thing is sabr. But sabr not in the way that we understand it. Sabr means that you must have restraint. Have restraint, simultaneously build your strength, and simultaneously plan for the future. So restrain yourself, build your capacity, and plan for the future. Use the pain of what's happening to the ummah now as an energizer to build your individual capacity, your collective capacity, and to plan so that we don't find ourselves in a situation where two billion Muslims can't come to the rescue of two million oppressed Muslims. 
That's how we approach it. You don't fret over the past, you learn from the past. You don't obsess over the future, you plan for the future, but you live in the present. Sabr means you live in the present. Then dua. You know, time is running out on me. Dua is a great therapy. One day perhaps we'll talk exclusively on this. One of, one of the factors that impacts on your mental health, remember I explained this up front, mental health is impacted by the physical, right? So it can be a physical cause, it could be a spiritual cause, it could be a mental emotional cause, it could also be a metaphysical cause. Jinn, jadu, sihar, black magic. It could be any one of those or it could be a combination of those. All these duas which Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has taught us, we don't read it. We don't read the dua before entering the toilet. We don't read the dua when exiting the toilet. We don't read the dua when we eat and after we eat. There is protection for our mental and physical health in all of these duas. Sometimes you may say, but no, but this dua has got nothing to do with mental health. Dua doesn't necessarily have to have to do directly with what you intend. If you look at the dua which Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam proclaimed for the Sahaba, that you know, if you're feeling down, Allahumma inni abduk, wabnu abdik, wabnu amatik, that particular dua, there's no direct request to Allah. But it's a conversation with Allah. It's an acknowledgement that it's only Allah who can help you. Look at Ayyub alayhi salam. He didn't make a direct request to Allah. He just said, Oh Allah, anni masani dur Allah, I'm afflicted. Wa anta rahimin. And you're the most merciful of those who show mercy. He didn't tell Allah what sickness he had, what illness he had. But Allah responded. Allah said, Fastajabna lah. We responded to him. So these daily adhkar is what will protect you physically, mentally, emotionally, as well as spiritually. Salah. So the first thing, taqdeer. The second thing, sabr. The third thing, Dua. The fourth thing, sabr. I mean, salah rather. See, salah gives you the opportunity whilst you're in this physical world to enter into the metaphysical world of the after. The closest a servant is to Allah is when your head is in sajda. Physically, you're on earth, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, you're under the arsh of Allah. You can't underestimate that. You can't underestimate that. When you're in sajda, your body and your spirit is in harmony. Remember I spoke earlier on that we have a disconnect between our soul and our bodies because we overnourish the body, we undernourish the soul. When you're in salah, there is totally ha total harmony. Salah enables you now to once again find equilibrium. Dhikr. They say words can impact on your thoughts. When somebody tells you something, you feel bad, you feel depressed. It's only words. So if words can have an effect, why can't dhikr have an effect? Allah says, Allah bi dhikrillahi The other aspect of solution is we must practice optimism. No matter what's happening to us, individually or collectively in the country or internationally as an ummah. See, Yaqub lost Yusuf He grieved, right? Lost his eyesight. Then his second most beloved son, Bin Yamin, he lost. Then his eldest son, Yehuda, he lost. And when they told him now that you have lost your third son, what did he say? He said, I have hope in Allah, that Allah will bring back to me all three of my sons. This was 40 years after he lost Yusuf Islam, And that's exactly what Allah did. You've got to practice optimism. Then we have to also understand there's a physical dimension to mental health. So I've explained this repeatedly and I'll say it one more time. That from an Islamic perspective, mental health is preserved and mental health is impacted and mental health is cured by a combination of factors. Physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual and metaphysical. But spiritual is the most important in terms of prevention and in terms of cure. However, there's the physical element. See when Nabi Aisha says, when there was a house where someone passed away, Nabi would say, give them tharid, give them talbina. Because those foods have a soothing effect. So if food can improve your mental health, then why can't medication improve your mental health? The one extreme is to say mental health can only be preserved and can only be cured by medication. 
And the other extreme is to say that you got no, that no medication can be used. That Nabi Sallallahu never used such medication or never went to a psychologist. If you need to go to a psychologist, there's no shame. If you need to go to a psychiatrist, there's no shame. If you need to take medication for mental health, there's no shame. In the same way, if you've got cancer, you've got to go to every expert and explore every opportunity and every option. If you've got mental health issues, you've got to explore every opportunity and every option. Just don't say it's only spiritual, nor say that it's only physical. Understand that it's a combination of many things. Then an attitude of gratitude. We only focus on what we don't have. Very rarely do we focus on what we do have. I mean, I ask you before you leave the masjid today, for five seconds, think of what Allah has given you. You have the ability to walk, you have the ability to breathe, you have the ability to taste, you have the ability to drink, you have the ability to eat, you have the ability to relieve yourself, you've got a spouse, you've got children, you've got a home, you've got a job, what more do you want? Everything else is insignificant. Everything else is insignificant. So stop comparing with others. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam says when you constantly compare with others, it impacts your mental health. You'll have so much that others are envious of you, yet you're not satisfied because you're envious of others. And nothing will satisfy your greed until they lower you in the grave. Last but not least, if you want to preserve your mental health and if you truly want to be happy, then make others happy. Be a community person. Because research has shown, apart from the fact that Islam has always emphasized this, that true happiness is in making others happy. People who live an individualistic and selfish life are never happy. And forgive others. Not for their sake, for your own sake. The more you carry grudges, the more it's going to impact on your mental health. 50, 60 years later, you're still carrying the baggage of what people have done to you. It, it's unnecessary. It just weighs you down. And choose your friends carefully. Because happiness is contagious and sadness is also contagious. When you sit with people who are only talking negative things, you're going to end up being negative. And when you talk with, sit with people who are positive, it helps you to overcome your own negativity. If failure afflicts you, if failure afflicts you, then understand failure is not permanent unless you give up. You only fail when you give up. Otherwise, if you fail and try again, ultimately you will succeed. So use failure as a stepping stone to success. And lastly, trust in Allah. Trust in Allah. These are some of the solutions in terms of the Quran and Sunnah when it comes to preserving your mental well-being. And also when it comes to curing any ailment or any compromise to your mental well-being. Whether it's as a result of individual circumstances, or as a result of what's happening in the country, or as a result of what's happening in Palestine, or as a result of what's happening in the Ummah or globally. We've got all of these challenges that impact on our medical, mental health. And technology has made it worse because you're being reminded all the time. You're being reminded all the time. So it's even more important in this age than ever before that we understand the Islamic perspective to mental health. May Allah grant us good physical health. May Allah grant us good mental health. May Allah grant us good emotional and most importantly, may Allah grant us more spiritual health. May Allah alleviate the suffering of our brothers in Palestine. May Allah make us see victory sooner rather than later. May Allah deal with the oppressors as he see fit. And may Allah tabarakah wa ta'ala liberate Masjid al-Aqsa in our lifetime. Ameen ya Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabi